Thanks for tuning in to the Harvest Springs weekly podcast. Every week we'll provide you with the weekend message from our Sunday service. Well, good morning, church. Morning. Man, you guys look good. This is a full house today. I, uh, I, I went over to one of our ushers. I was like, hey, you might have to help people find some empty spots. And, uh, and that was about at uh, 10, 10 or so. And then for the next 10 minutes, just a steady stream of people just kept right on coming. And I'm like, oh, man, where are we going to put them all? And you're putting up chairs in the back. And some of you guys are having to sit in the front row like you never have before. It's, it's, uh, we're, we're glad you're here. We're really glad you're here. My name is Corey. I'm the lead pastor here. I don't know about you guys, but I have been captured by the stuff that's happening over in, uh, in Europe. And last night I was, I was kind of... Uh, scrolling through my little, I'm a Twitter guy. So uh, if you're a Twitter person, follow me and I'll follow you back. I love to find great false people that are on Twitter. Uh, but mostly it's just me. <laughs> but the, uh, as I was scrolling through and I follow a lot of, you know, different pastors and ministry organizations, one ministry organization posted that they had been in contact with their pastor in Kiev and uh, that he'd been up all night because of the, uh, the bombings and all the stuff that was happening there. But uh, he had been preparing his message while he was up, and he was going to go out and go to church and find out if it was still standing. And if it was still standing, they were going to do church. And man, I tell you what, I was so convicted by that. I, I think about how soft it is. Uh, how soft we are sometimes about going to church. Oh, I got a little sniffles or, oh, you know, the wind is blowing hard, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and man, sometimes it's sometimes stuff like this. that helps us see what real commitment looks like to the King of Kings. Sometimes it helps us remind us of just how significant this moment is. This is not just, you know, ah, we didn't have anything to do on Sunday morning. I think we'll just go to, to church. This is an opportunity for us to gather together, be a community, exalt Jesus together, to get our eyes on the most important things, and to allow God to do something in us that will ultimately transform the way we live out there, right? So this is important stuff, and I'm glad we're here today. I also, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, as I was just keeping my eyes on the news and I saw a lot of earlier in the week before Russia invaded, there was a lot of preparation that Ukraine was making. And, and then all of a sudden war was kind of declared. And now all of a sudden people are coming in and, and Ukraine made the decision that they were going to basically call into uh, service for the country, everyone who was 18 to 60 years old. And so a lot of people, a lot of, a lot of men with families were taking their, uh, their wives and their children and putting them on buses and trains and, and trying to get them to places of safety so that they could go back and, uh, and defend their land. And a video that came across my little Twitter feed was of a Ukrainian father, had to be maybe in his late 30s, saying goodbye to his young daughter and his wife. Maybe some of you guys have seen this video. And as they're trying to say goodbye, all of a sudden you hear this this young girl kind of cry and weep, realizing she's saying goodbye to her dad. And then the dad begins to weep. And, uh, and then I begin to weep. The language is the dad is, dad is trying to communicate to the child and to the mom. And it was in Ukrainian. I, I didn't understand anything that was being said. 
but I was thinking about what it would be like to be that father in that moment. And I'm guessing he wasn't telling a joke. I'm guessing he wasn't talking about the weather. I'm guessing every word that he spoke in that moment would have been meaningful and important and measured, intentional. Because it wasn't the time for small talk, was it? It was a time to say the most important things. Today, we're starting a message series entitled Words of a Dying Man. It's all focused on the last moments of Jesus' life. If you read uh, in the gospel accounts of the crucifixion of Jesus, that once he was hung on the cross, Jesus spoke seven unique things from the cross. They all have significance, and they all are important. They all kind of are, are individual messages. They're not long communications. They're short and to the point, but they're incredibly powerful. And all of them reveal the greatness of who Jesus Christ really is. If you have your Bibles, open up to Luke chapter 23. In Luke 23, in verse 33, it says, And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Okay, this is the first statement we're going to take a look at. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, or they were mocking him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ the God of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you were the king of the Jews, save yourself. But there was also, or there was also an inscription over him saying, This is the king of the Jews. There's a lot of things that we often think about when we read the story of Jesus' crucifixion. Some of us, maybe, maybe you're you're not so familiar with the Bible, but you've heard the story of Jesus being crucified. These seven statements, some of us, you know, would be maybe very familiar with them. Some of them, just a few of us, would be, we would know that statement. Maybe there's some of them that you wouldn't even recognize or know or hadn't even really thought about. But every single statement that Jesus spoke from the, cro from the cross came with an incredible price. We often, when I read, sometimes I just... I have this picture of Jesus just kind of standing there on the cross and is, you know, obviously in some discomfort, but, but just talking like we are, like having a conversation, like, you know, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. You know, it's kind of, it's just kind of communicating like we would communicate. That it would be easy. It would be natural. And certainly there'd be a certain intensity around the words because they're the last words of Jesus but we fail to realize just exactly how hard it would have been for Jesus to actually speak out loud from the cross. 
to understand this, we have to understand just a little bit about what crucifixion actually did to a human body. You see, most people, when they were crucified, they did not die of being crucified. They did not die from blood loss. They did not die from shock or blunt trauma. They actually died because they suffocated. They simply could not breathe. The Romans developed crucifixion to torture a person to death. It was designed to be unbelievably painful, and it was a torturous act because a person being crucified had to choose where they were going to suffer the most. If you grab your wrist, right, when it says that the nails were driven through the the, the hands, or the, it really was more the wrist, this would be considered part of the hand for a biblical writer, but for the wrist, if you, if you grab your wrist, I, I just encourage you, grab your wrist, there is a little kind of spot where you can feel there's like a, 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 you can drop down in it. It's like kind of a gap there. If you squeeze and press really hard, guess what you'll feel? Pain. It hurts. You know why it hurts? Because there's nerves that run right through there. The Romans would look for that spot. And then they would drive a nail through that spot. The actual, you know, bone structure in the wrist would be enough to hold the weight of a person to the cross. It would pin them there. But then the weight, can you imagine then, you've got that nerve right there, a nail's just been driven through it, and now the entire weight of your body would be hanging on that nerve. It would be excruciatingly painful. So the only way that a person could try to uh, ease that pain would be to try to push themselves up and take the pressure, of the weight of their body off of their wrists. It would, it would release the pressure onto that nerve. It wouldn't make it uh, excruciatingly painful. It's still painful but it would release the pain on the wrist. The problem was that came at an expense because you had nails in also through your feet. Now, just imagine you have nails through your feet and you are pushing, putting all of the weight of your body on those nails. What is that creating? Another context for excruciating pain shooting through the lower part of your body. And a person that was being crucified was constantly strung between those two extremes. Do I experience pain? excruciating pain in the upper part of my body as this nerve is ripping down my arms into my chest. I'm feeling it as my weight is leaning into it. Or do I push myself up and feel all the excruciating pain shooting up through my lower body? And I constantly am forced between two extremes. And for, uh, for a person, as they begin to fight that battle of trying to manage pain and suffering, soon they begin to grow weary that they couldn't hold themselves up and they're basically the structure of their upper body muscles would begin to collapse. And as they would begin to collapse, right, the pressure on their, their diaphragm and the ability to actually bring uh, air into their lungs grew more and more difficult. Now, how many of you guys know in order to speak, you have to first inhale, which meant that probably for Jesus, to be able to speak, he had to press himself up, gather as much air as he possibly could, and then lower himself back down 
into the pain of his arms to be able to expel the voice or the, the air through his vocal cords to be able to produce the verbal words that he spoke from the cross. Every word would have been excruciatingly painful and would have come at an incredible price. I remember when I was just a young boy, we would go and visit my dad's brother, who was quite a bit older than my dad. We called him, he was, his name was George. We called him Uncle George. And he had MS. He had had it for like 30 or 40 years. And we would go and visit him. And by that time, MS had kind of deteriorated his body to a point where he could, you know, it basically destroys your muscles and you can't function. And, and so I remember going in and my Uncle George would be fighting for breath. Every time you just see his entire body just. <gasps> and then, you know, he would see us and there'd be this sense of excitement and he wanted to speak to us, but we knew how hard it was for him to breathe. But because he wanted to communicate with us and he wanted to, you know, so he would. <gasps> and then he would try to express to us through words that he was glad to see us or how are you? How was school? Every word had a cost. When we think about Jesus' words from the cross, it's important to us to, us to understand that if it cost so much pain for Jesus to speak, then he probably wasn't just throwing out meaningless words that what Jesus said from the cross had unbelievable importance and significance for each and every one of us. Now, what do we see in this passage, verse 33? When they came to the place of the school, uh, place of the school, there they crucified him, the criminals, one on the right and one on his left. And Jesus said, and Jesus said, what is Jesus very First word, Father. Now, so many times we just we just blast through the passage. Right? You know, I, I I got it. We got a I got a reading plan. You know, I want to mark off my reading for the day, and so I just read so fast through the scripture, and I don't often stop and just think about the significance of the simple things that are so clear and obvious in the scripture. But I want you to think about how significant it would be for Jesus in the moment of his greatest suffering, in the moment of being abused, uh, mocked, humiliated, mistreated by evil people, right? He is, he is being mistreated like no human has ever been mistreated before. He is being uh, humiliated. They're gambling for his clothes. They're hurling, you know, insults up to him. They're, you know, religious people are like, oh, if he's really the Messiah, like, let him save himself, right? Come on. What's the deal? He's, he's there, and it's, all of it's there. The kind of mistreatment and suffering Jesus is going through in the moment, we just can't wrap our mind around. And I know how many of us respond when the difficult times come, we turn and we look at God and say, God, what are you doing? 
we don't say Father. We say God. Because you're not close to me. You're not near me. You're out there. Obviously, if you were close, if you were Father, you'd be doing something about this. If you were Father, you'd be changing the circumstances that I'm dealing with. If you were really a Father to me as a son, then I wouldn't be going through this. Remember, Jesus, just a few hours before this, had been in a garden on his face pleading with his father. Father, if there be any way that this cup can pass from me, I let's do that. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. I know how my kids respond when, uh, when their dad says no. Right? I don't know how many of you guys are parents here. What happens when dad says no? They want it so bad, right? Please, 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 I want it. You know, no. I hate this family. You know, rah, rah, rah. <laughs> I'm leaving this family. I'm running away. I'm going to go join somebody else, right? You're not treating me the way I should be treated. You know, it's, it's you're a bad dad. Notice here. Jesus had poured out his heart before God with a request, and his father says, no. And yet you would not sense an ounce of bitterness in Jesus' heart here, would you? In fact, in the midst of his suffering and his mistreatment, he does not God. He still maintains that sense of intimate trust as a son trusting in his father calling out from Father. It was a relationship that he did not just toss to the side because things weren't going his way. You guys think about this. There's a lot of things in this life that don't go our way. There's a lot of things that are hard and difficult. There's, there's suffering. Many times our suffering is caused by evil, wicked people. The pain and the sorrow we're experiencing, many times that's, that's unbelievably difficult and hard. I remember talking with a guy and said, I don't want anything to do with God because my mom died when I was young. And if God was going to allow me to go through that and wouldn't save my mom and would force me to live life without a mom, then I don't, I don't want anything to do with a God like that. And we sometimes look at that and we kind of shake our heads with understanding. But Jesus in the midst of his greatest suffering, still hung on to God as his father and still identified himself in the family posture. I am a son and he is my father. The very next words that Jesus speaks, two words, forgive them. Forgive them. Now, I find this just fascinating. I've been studying, you know, kind of all week and kind of wrestling with this. And last night I came in here, and uh, as I was kind of walking through this and kind of praying through the, the message, all of a sudden the Lord just was like, uh, I saw something that I, I think maybe just would be fascinating for you to see too. The Lord took me right back to Genesis chapter 3. You guys remember what happened in Genesis chapter 3? It's the fall of man. 
Adam and Eve in the garden and the tree, disobedience from God. Now, what we see in Luke 23 is God now is heaping upon Jesus our sin, right? Isaiah says that we all like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, talking about Jesus, the iniquity or the sin of us all. On the cross, a sinless man is now experiencing sin being thrust upon him. Okay? You seeing that? That happened in the garden. Right? Now, it happened because Adam and Eve chose to sin. But before they chose to sin, right, they were pure and they were spotless. They were right before God, right? They, they, were, not, they were not sinful people. They were, they were righteous. They were holy. But their choice, all of a sudden, sin now is upon them. And how did Adam respond? The first Adam. It's fascinating. If you go to Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, here's what it says. Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of days. This is right after they had, they had sinned. They just did what God told them not to. And, uh, and then they realized they were in big trouble. Right? So they hear God walking in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Now, what often is the, this, the first response when we sin? Is the guilt sweeps over us and we want to run and hide. We want to run and hide. We don't, want, we don't want anyone to know. We think we can kind of cover this over. Maybe it'll go away, right? If you know it's 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 we just run and hide. So this is what they go do. They run and hide, but then when their sin becomes known, because notice, I want you to notice what they do. When their sin becomes known, what does Adam do? It says, But the Lord God called to the man and said, This is in verse 9, where are you? Right? So Adam and Eve kind of come out of the bushes and sorry, we're hiding. And, you know, he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. God said, well, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Have you sinned? Have you disobeyed my instruction? I want you to notice this. Here's Adam's response. The woman, right? How many guys, how many guys have done this, right? In the midst of your sinful actions, your sinful attitude, where we talked about this yesterday in the marriage conference, right? You know, you are not being righteous. You are not leading in a godly way. Your attitude couldn't be further from how God would want you to live. But when you are confronted on it, you go, well, it's your fault, woman. The woman, right? So he's got a finger pointing there, but then all of a sudden he whips out the other finger. The woman you gave me. So what does Adam do? All of a sudden when the weight of sin comes upon him, what does broken humanity do? We blame. We point the finger. Broken humanity takes the weight of sin and suddenly goes, it's you and it's you and you're the problems, it's not me. 
We posture ourselves to look better than we really are. We try to deflect it all. It's, it's not us. It's you. You're the one who caused it, right? We want to maintain this idea or this image of our purity and our holiness. But in reality, we're broken and we're depraved individuals. It's, it's us that's got the problem. But I want you to take a look at Jesus. Because what do we know about Jesus? that Jesus is not broken humanity. Jesus is fully human, the way God intended us to be. And when sin was put upon him, what does he say? Father, them. Right? Adam doesn't want to point to himself in his own self-preservation. Jesus doesn't point to himself in an effort to preserve others. Are you following this? Father, forgive them. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 Paul writes this, he says, but God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, I don't know about you, but I've read that passage and I just go, okay, so it's the death of Christ. And I think about the kind of the moment he passes away, right? That's the death. You know, he's still alive at this point, on the cross, he's still kind of, he's suffering, he's moving towards death, but he's still alive. So in a lot of ways, it's the, it's the dying part that demonstrates God's love for us. But I, I want you to think about this a little differently. Because I would say that from the very moment the cross began, the demonstration of God's love is showing up in abundant measure. Because what Jesus says here might be the most loving thing in the entire scripture. Those words, Father, forgive them, might reveal more about the love of God than anything else we could ever read. How many of you guys would consider yourself a pretty forgiving person? I'd say I'm I'm pretty forgiving. I've had people that that have hurt me. I've had suffering and pain in my life. There's been times when it's been difficult and hard. And and I've had to to let some of that stuff go. I've realized over the course of my life that it's, it's a pretty easy thing for me to say, God, I'll let it go. I'll let it go. I'm just going to trust it into your hands. Because why? Because you're the righteous judge. You're the righteous judge. And here's what I know. I don't have to worry about it. Because I know at some point, whatever they did to me, that pain and that hurt, that that evil action did in my heart and my life, the righteous judge knows about it, and he'll do something about it. Now, I don't know about you, but that, 
that kind of gives me a little comfort to know that that person that hurt me, that person that did damage to me is going to be judged. And they're not going to be able to escape it because why? Because we know that God is a righteous judge. He's a righteous one. So how many of you guys, when you think about that, the fact that God is going to judge at the end of time, you know, okay, that helps me. That helps me kind of forgive. It helps me let it go. I, I don't have to judge. I don't have to hold it. I don't have to be bitter about it. I don't have to, you know, uh, about it. I'll just wait for the judgment and then, then they'll get their thing. How many of you guys with me on that? I'm going to say something interesting here. It's a trap. It just trapped you because it's not the way of Jesus. It might be the way of me. And I've seen this in my life many times. Oh, that, that person, they're, they're going to get the judgment. Oh, man, they're going to get the judgment. I want to trust them to the judgment of God. And so then I'm going to feel somewhat released from it. If I know God's going to deal with it, then I don't have to. And we feel good about that. But here's what we see in Jesus. If anyone could thrust humanity into the righteous judgment of God, it could have been Jesus, right? Jesus didn't deserve to be on the cross. He didn't deserve to be mistreated. He didn't deserve to be abandoned by his disciples. He didn't deserve to be betrayed by one of his closest associates for just 30 pieces of silver. He didn't deserve to be beaten. He didn't deserve to be falsely accused. He didn't deserve to have nails driven through his his arms and his feet, to have soldiers mock him, you know, Pharisees ridicule him. He didn't deserve any of that. If anyone could have said, bring your judgment upon these people, it could have been Jesus. And what's interesting is that Jesus does call out to the righteous judge. He calls out to the righteous judge but he does not ask for judgment. In fact, he asks for our pardon. You see, it's one thing to forgive if you know that person's going to get it in the end. It's another thing to forgive and then to beg the Father that they wouldn't experience the judgment that they absolutely deserve. See, when Jesus spoke those words, Father, forgive them, he was not just talking about soldiers that had driven nails through his hands and feet or people who were mocking him while he hung there and suffered. Jesus was begging his Father for our forgiveness too. And the sin that was placed on him was not his sin, it was our sin. And the weight of that sin that he held and had to carry, he asked for the judgment to be upon himself. And I don't know about you, but when I read those words, I think, what kind of love is that? Because I honestly, 
I don't know if I can even comprehend what kind of love it would take to have that kind of posture to beg the righteous judge to forgive the evil, wicked deeds that have been done to me. And yet that's exactly what Jesus does for every single one of us. You came in today, you should have grabbed one of these. If you didn't, if you didn't grab one of these, these little communion cups, I'd encourage you to run out and grab them real quick. We're going to take communion together. Here's what I'm going to ask us to do. You know how, you know, it's all the crinkle, crinkle, rip, tear, pull off. Let's just get this all out of the way all together. Let's just get the, get the bread out and the juice cup out. Just take all the covers off and, and just get the, the bread and the cup in our hands. Let's get it all out of the way. Let's not let it be a distraction. I'm going to ask the band to come out, and we're just going to, we're going to take communion, and we're just going to prepare our hearts to kind of finish the service together. Just hours before these statements from Jesus on the cross, just hours before, Jesus with his, was with his disciples in the upper room. They're gathered together. They're eating a meal together, the Passover meal. They're looking to the deliverance of God. And Jesus took bread. And it says that he stood up and he took it and he broke it. But then he says something very interesting. He says, this is my body. But he doesn't just stop there, does he? He doesn't say, this is my body. He says, this is my body broken. But he doesn't even stop there, does he? It's not just that this is his body, represents his body. It's not just that his body was broken. But he says, this is my body, which is broken. What are the words? Let's say it together. For you for you. Some of you guys are in this room today and you, you haven't quite comprehended what it means that Christ went to the cross for you. But I'm begging you today to understand the unbelievable love of God that is displayed from Jesus on the cross who has begged God for your forgiveness your pardon and that he willfully took your sin upon himself and allowed his body to be broken for you. And at the same time, right, what does he take? He, he took, the cup, took the cup after dinner and he said, this is my blood which was shed, let's say it together, for you. He did it for us. He did it for us. And then he says these words, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, do so in what? Remembrance of me. So God, we come before you today and we remember 
And it's easy for us to just remember your death. But Father, today, we don't just remember your death. We remember your love. It is your love that propelled you to allowing your body to be broken. It is your love that allowed your blood to be shed to cover us from all sin. So today, we remember you and the overwhelming love of God. And so we take these things together, remembering the love of God in our life. In Jesus' name, let's partake together. So God, we pour out our hearts before you, overwhelmed by your love. The fact that we have done such evil and wicked, not just to each other, but to you, oh God. And yet even in spite of all of our rebellious and hate-filled actions and thoughts, you still plead for our forgiveness. And the salvation that is found in your name through Jesus, we are welcomed into a family we do not deserve, but which has a father that stands with his arms open, welcoming us all in. Thank you, God, for the love that overwhelms us in moments like these as we remember you. And we pray, God, that you would move in us. Help us not to just have a moment, like an hour, where this means something to us, but help us to leave from this place and live lives where this matters to us. Help us to live like we're loved by God. And help us to then share that love with those who desperately need around us. Help us to do that, Lord. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Will you stand with us as we close? Thanks so much for listening to the Harvest Springs podcast. Our hope is that you hear the truth of God's word and that you are encouraged and challenged by it. If you would like to take your faith journey to the next level, check out the Getting Started plan on our mobile app or our website, harvestsprings.com. The Getting Started Plan is a seven-day video-based teaching that will help you start your relationship with Jesus off in the right direction. And if there's anything that we can do to help, just fill out a connection card on our website or on the mobile app.